our results, and this is one of the benefits of doing a large national sample like this, show that really, if you look at kids who have used drugs, or let's say kids who use cannabis in the last 30 days among 12th graders, 20% report that they've used cannabis in the last 20 days. So it's really the minority. And many kids might feel like there's something wrong with them, they're not fitting in because all their friends are using drugs. When in fact, the majority of kids don't use drugs. And it's important to get that message across that the people are using cannabis who are really the people who are anomalous. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur. And I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. Richard Miak, who is co-investigator of the NIDA-funded Monitoring the Future study. He received his PhD degree in sociology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and an MPH degree from Johns Hopkins University. His work focuses on trends in substance use with an emphasis on disentangling how these trends vary by age, historical period, and birth cohort membership. Since 1975, the Monitoring the Future survey has measured drug and alcohol use and related attitudes among adolescent students nationwide. A nationally representative sample of survey participants report their drug use behaviors across three time periods, lifetime, past year, and past month. The survey is funded by NIDA, a component of the National Institutes of Health, and conducted by the University of Michigan. Today's episode is going to be an in-depth look at what the Monitoring the Future study says regarding the trends in teenage and adolescent cannabis use, including usage patterns, perception of risk, and more. We also chat about the biggest risk factors associated with cannabis use, Dr. Miak's top findings from the study, the role nicotine plays in all of this, and much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Richard Miak to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I'm excited to, to dive in with you today because you are the head of the Monitoring the Future study, which I believe is the longest longitudinal study that has followed drug use trends, you know, adolescents using drugs, um, including like risk, availability, again, accessibility, stuff like that. So if you could talk a bit about the study, how long it's been going on for, um, what you guys track, why do you think it's so important? I think the audience would really appreciate it. Yeah, sure. So Monitoring the Future started in 1975. And at that time, we focused only on 12th graders. And then starting in 1991, we expanded our scope to 8th graders and to 10th graders. And it's a survey that includes lots of questions, but we're funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. And they're particularly interested in tracking trends over time, the drugs that kids are using, the drugs that are increasing in prevalence, and the drugs that are falling out of favor. Very important information by which to make drug policy. So one example, uh, this goes way back, I don't know how old your listeners are, but cigarette smoking, was at very high levels among adolescents in the 1990s. And in the mid-1990s, it was actually going up. That's just back in the day. I don't know if you remember the Joe Camel uh, advertising campaign. These were cartoons specifically targeted at children. Because it turns out, if you are going to become addicted to cigarettes, you have to start pretty early. You have to start in your teens for the most part. 
has to do with the development of the brain and what have you. I've actually read stories about 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds who want to get addicted to cigarettes. And so they start smoking and they just find it disgusting and they don't get addicted at all. So, you know, they, the tobacco companies, they, they know this. And so that's why they're targeting kids. And we saw a very large upsurge in cigarette smoking from the mid-90s to the late 1990s. And that was in large part, uh, part of the reason for what was called the Master Tobacco Settlement Agreement of 1998 which put huge constraints on the marketing and, and sales of cigarettes to kids and to all adults, all adults really. Uh, there was a media anti-smoking campaign that came out of that, heavy taxes on cigarettes, uh, big constraints on where cigarette companies could advertise and what have you. And, and the beauty is that that worked. We've seen a huge decline, seven-fold decline in LS and cigarette smoking since then. So that's, okay, ancient, ancient past. But these days we have vaping and uh, both nicotine vaping, marijuana vaping, those really shot up in prevalence like you would not believe from 2017 to 2019. I hope I'm not getting too off track here. Alfred, for your question. No, no, no. Keep keep going with it. I mean, I'd love to know. I'd love to know why, in your in your opinion, you think that they did skyrocket the way they did. Yeah. So nicotine vaping, for example, from 2017 to 2018 experienced the largest increase in prevalence we've ever seen in the 48 years, largest one-year increase we've ever seen in the history of the project. And we track dozens of drugs. You name the drug, we probably track it, right? And this was the largest we'd ever seen. And then um, from 2018 to 2019 with another, another huge jump. And that is, I suppose, a billion-dollar question. Um, why did it increase so much? And I think a large part of it is the flavors. So. Um, Nobody likes the taste of tobacco. There's no tobacco ice cream, for example. Apparently, it's just a terrible flavor. I haven't smoked myself. But these vaping devices that were available from 2017 onward, they come in a wide variety of flavors. They come in mint, they come in bubble gum, they come in chocolate. And so they mask that terrible taste, which is quite a barrier for many kids. And so that barrier was overcome by, by the flavors. Also, they're easily concealable, right? You can put them in your pocket and you can. You can vape uh, pretty much on school grounds if you want, if you're discreet about it. Whereas if you're smoking a joint, uh, it's going to be more difficult to do that at school because of the telltale smell. And the, these new vaping devices don't have that kind of smell associated with them. There's a constant need, I believe, to monitor the drugs that adolescents are taking, uh, in large part because there's legal and illegal companies that oftentimes target kids to get them to use their drugs. And we need national data in order to inform policy at the national level, as we saw in 1998 with the National Agreement. And hopefully, um, you know, we'll have some kind of national response to debating. And in fact, I think we already have, right? Where the FDA, uh, they have prohibited all flavors in vaping devices. So um, at least nicotine vaping devices, because the FDA has uh, jurisdiction over nicotine from the 2009 family Tobacco Control Actors. It's called something like that. So um, that actually, I think, has helped arrest the huge increase that we saw. So these days, you're not supposed to be able to find anywhere flavored nicotine devices, although kids still do find them um, every now and then. Um, so that's still a work in progress. But I, I think this, this emphasis on flavors, it's, it's really pretty brilliant. Uh, I wish I could say I thought of it, but I didn't. Uh, because if you 
restrict the flavors, then that should, it looks like it is, preventing use by kids. But adults who are trying to quit smoking, they can still use vaping devices. We're not taking it out of their hands or out of their mouths, per se, right? Um, so it's kind of a, a middle ground there that I think is an important compromise so that uh, we get the benefits of vaping for tobacco cessation at the same time we're preventing kids from using it. So to get back to your question, and it's a very long answer, I apologize. What is monitoring the future? So the key value added of monitoring the future, in my opinion, is that the results are nationally representative. And not everyone knows what that means. And so I have an analogy. You can imagine you have a paint can full of liquid. Some of it is gas, some of it is oil, some of it is water. And you wanna know the proportions of those various liquids in this paint can, right? So what you could do, you could take the paint can, you could go down to your local hardware store, and you could go to one of those shakers, you know, those, those shakers that shake very vigorously. And as soon as it's all shook up, you could take a tablespoon and you can analyze the contents of that tablespoon of liquid. You might find 30% is gas, 60% uh, no, is oil, and 10% is water. And if you shook it up correctly, then just from that one tablespoon, you'll be able to make inferences about the whole paint can full of liquid, just that one little sample. And the, the, the key there is to get the right sample. So what we do, we have a national list of all the eighth, all, all the schools that have eighth graders, 10th graders, and 12th graders in the United States. And you can't get that from the government, actually, because the government keeps track of the public schools, but they don't keep track of the private schools, necessarily. So we go to a vendor, uh, this vendor, uh, they, they generally do a lot of business selling textbooks to schools. So they have a list that they keep updated of all the schools in the United States. And what we do, basically, is for all the 12th grade schools, we take all those schools and we shake them up, so to speak, although we do it a little more sophisticated than that. Um, we don't actually put them in a paint can. But we take all those names and we draw we draw a sample of, of schools. And then we approach those schools, we ask them to participate in our survey. We do the same thing with all the 10th grade schools in the United States. And we do the same thing with all the 8th grade schools in the United States. And because we're following the scientific method and we have employed full-time professional sampling statistics to make sure we do it right, we can take our sample, which is usually about 40,000 adolescents a year, and we can generalize that to all 12 million 8th, 10th, and 12th graders in the United States. Uh, this way, we don't have to survey all 12 million of them because that would be very expensive, be very time consuming. It it's just not feasible, right? But you don't need to. And we're not the only one that use this method, for example. You might hear about the unemployment rate or people who are unemployed or looking for work. You might, you might see a report that says 5% uh, of adults in the United States are unemployed. And of those, half of them are looking for work. And you might think, well, how do they know? Nobody asked me, right? Um, and the answer is they took a random sample. And if you do that correctly, then you can get a pretty accurate estimate, give or take, you know, a percentage point or two in terms of sampling here. This is, I believe, what is the distinguishing characteristic of modern the future is that our results are nationally representative. We, we say, we claim, and, and it's true that our results are what you would get if you surveyed all 12 men in adolescents in the United States. And there's only a handful. If you're looking at tobacco, for example, there's really only two studies that the FDA will use to inform its decisions. There's a National Youth Tobacco Survey and there's Monitoring the Future. And there aren't too many other studies that go through the whole trouble like we do to actually go out there and sample from all the schools in the United States. And we have these 
web panels you might have heard about where you kind of ask kids to participate, but it's hard to know what that generalizes to. Uh, maybe it's representing the United States, maybe it's not. There's no test for that. There's no real way to know. The only way to know for sure that your sample is representative to, of the United States is to go through this whole process that we go through um, every year. So a uh, long answer to your question. Diving more specifically into cannabis, um, because um, you know this is part of an extended series on cannabis use, what have the trends shown as far as cannabis specifically among 8th, 10th, and 12th graders? Like, what, should, what, what, what do you think parents should know? Well, I guess those are different questions, right? There's the trends and there's what, what parents should know about cannabis. I will say that from, let's see, 1995 to right before the pandemic, which was uh, 2020, what's 2020 for us, the prevalence of marijuana, I'm sorry, cannabis use, pretty much stayed the same. It, it changed very little. There was no direction. So, for example, and let's say 1998, 38% of 12th graders had used cannabis in the past year. Uh, in 2020, instead of 38%, it was 35%. So, very, very little change. That's for 12th graders. Um, let's see. Let's look at uh, 10th graders, 1998. It was 31% had used cannabis in the past year. 2020, it was 28%. So, again, just a very, very small difference. Uh, same thing uh, with eighth grade students as well. So there hasn't been a lot of change in the prevalence of cannabis use until the pandemic. And uh, after the pandemic, that's another story. Uh, we saw we saw quite a decrease. I guess we're going to use the words cannabis and marijuana inter interchangeably when we talk about it. When, we, when I'm talking about cannabis, I'm talking about marijuana um, specifically. What types of questions do you feel like? I know you ask a variety of questions to these kids, but with with cannabis specifically. Which do you, what do you think are the most important questions that you're gathering from these students? And then the back end of that is, how can you tell if they're actually telling the truth? Yeah, right. Those kids, you know, who knows what they're saying, right? So we ask questions about use. So we ask them if they, we use the word marijuana, we give examples like weed and pot. And nowadays we ask them, have they used it in any form? So we say, you know, have you, have you smoked it? Have you vaped it? Do you have used it in terms of edibles or something like that? We're very comprehensive in terms of what we ask about. We also ask kids if they think that they put themselves at great harm by using marijuana use. We call that perceived risk. And that turns out to be a pretty good leading indicator. So in one year, typically, if uh, perceived risk goes down, so kids don't think cannabis use is dangerous, then the next year, cannabis use typically goes up. So those are some of the, the key questions we ask in terms of cannabis. You ask, well, are the kids telling the truth or not, right? So we handle that in two ways. And the first way is we clean our data. So we don't accept all the responses. Uh, we know that some kids, by their responses, aren't taking the survey very seriously. For example, if they say they use heroin every day, they never use marijuana, for example. So we have checks for that. It's a whole automated process that we have. And every year we throw out about 3% of the sample because we just know the kids aren't telling the truth. Um, that being said, lots of times, uh, let's see, let's look at lifetime use of marijuana. We'll look at that now. Um, gosh, so back in 2020, 44% of the 12th graders we surveyed said that they had used marijuana at some point in their life. So kids aren't shy about telling us what drugs they're using. I've heard stories where Kids even say, well, you know, they want to look cool, so they want to use something and that kind of stuff. But 
the most important way we deal with this, 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 this idea that maybe kids aren't telling the truth, is that we really focus on trends over time. We look at change from one year to the next. So if there is a certain portion of the population uh, of people who are responding to our survey who are not telling the truth, it's probably going to be the same the next year as well, right? And so when we compare from one year to the next, okay, maybe there's some kind of uh, social desirability bias in there that in any one year is leading the, the prevalence to be high or low. But when we compare from one year to the next, that bias, it cancels out, right? And that change, that difference is, is substantive. That we can say is not due to misreporting on the basis of the kids because the misreporting should be equal in both of those years. And the change is what we really focus on. So earlier, for example, today, uh, just a minute ago when I was talking about vaping, for example, I really focused on the changes over time more so than the absolute prevalence level in any one year. What differences have you seen between public and private schools? Oh, yeah, you know, nothing consistent. It really depends on the grade, right? So in the younger grades, like eighth grade, for example, for the most part, drug use is much lower among the private school students for whatever reason. Um, but then in 12th grade, uh, it can sometimes be a little bit higher. Uh, you know, who knows why? Uh, but that being said, um, I haven't really seen consistent trends over time or consistent trends um, within the grades, I guess. Um, so... Uh, we do go out of our way to survey the, the, the private schools, and, and for the most part, they're pretty similar, and especially in the way that they move over time. So if private schools have lower levels of cannabis use, for example, uh, if we see there's an overall national increase, we'll probably see that both in the public schools and the private. It looks like, you know, looking at this, this graph that you passed along to me before um, we recorded, it looks like that 10th graders have had the biggest jump in marijuana use, both in the lifetime chart and in the last um, 12 months. Um, any insights on, on why that might be the case? The biggest jump from in what years are you referring to? <clears throat> I mean, if you look at just the last, the last year alone, it looks like the biggest jump on the graph has gone up in the, like the biggest increase, I should say, percentage increase has been in, in 10th, 10th graders. So just to make sure we're on the same page, so like for lifetime, for example, um, in 2021, it was 22% of 10th graders that reported they had ever used cannabis. And and then in 2022, it was 24%. So you're talking about the jump from 22% to 24%? Yeah, I'm just looking at this graph that you passed yes, along. Right, yeah, that's the same one. And it looks like that has the biggest, because it looks like the... 12th grade, it's, it's kind of gone down a little bit, not much, but a little bit. And then the same in eighth grade up a little bit, but not much. Yeah. Well, that 10th grade is pretty interesting because you'll, you'll notice also there was that huge decrease from 2020 to 2021. Do you see that on the graph? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so in 2020, uh, we were rolling along with our survey until March 15th when the pandemic closed all the schools. And so we had to stop. So 2020, results are entirely pre-pandemic. And then 2021, those are results that are after the pandemic. And what you see there is that a very large drop, the largest drop we've ever seen for marijuana use from 2020 to 2021. And you know, it's not surprising. Kids aren't at school. They're not exposed to peers and peer pressure, try to emulate older people they see using drugs at the school. Many of them were at home. 
being monitored by their parents. It's hard to use drugs when your parents are looking over your shoulder. Also, there were fewer parties during the pandemic times. And you know, what a great, great way to start using drugs is, is at a party. So what we see in reference to the increase that you talked about in 10th grade is that there's a, a slight rebound, I guess you could say, in lifetime and yeah, lifetime cannabis use among 10th graders. But it's nowhere near what it was pre-pandemic. So pre-pandemic, it was 33%. And our most recent reading is 24%. So it's almost 10 points lower than it was uh, pre-pandemic. And uh, kind of something interesting, I thought, is that uh, in 2021, when we saw these large decreases in cannabis use, the question was, were those decreases going to stick, right? Because on the one hand, it could be that in 2022, maybe things just go right back to the way they were. But on the other hand, there's a lot of literature, particularly on smoking, that says if kids don't use drugs by a certain age, they're never going to use drugs. So it could be that the pandemic, to the extent that it prevented a lot of kids from using drugs who otherwise would have, maybe those kids are going to have lower levels of drug use for the rest of their lives. And that's what it's looking like. You know, because in 2022, there was, as you mentioned, a slight rebound, but nowhere near a return to the way things were. So it seems like if you can prevent kids uh, from using drugs at these uh, tender adolescent years, they probably will not use drugs you know, anymore, or they have a lower probability of using drugs, I guess is the way that I would put it. I think people might be listening to this, or if they're looking at the site and they're, they're seeing this massive decrease after the pandemic. They might say, well, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Like all kids' mental health problems have, have skyrocketed post-pandemic. So, and a lot of times marijuana and other substances are like the solution for these mental health problems. So like, how do you, how do you explain that? Right. Well, I suppose if the kids wanted to try to use drugs to self-medicate, as it were, they didn't have much opportunity to. Uh, because they had no supply at school and they were being looked after by their parents. And so maybe they wanted to, but they didn't. Kind of interesting point if you're talking to parents is that during the pandemic, drug use among kids went down, but drug use among parents, like alcohol, for example, that went up because they, they were at home with the kids all day. So again, the, the parents had the opportunity to self-medicate and it seems like they did. What are your thoughts on, as you interpret the data and looking at the the prevalence of use over the last, say, five to 10 years, looking at how kids perceive risk and all this stuff. What do you think are some of the biggest like risk factors in kids that are, are, are using from what you found from the data? Yeah, boy. Um, well, I hate to say it, but um, what we see from the pandemic is going to school. That seems to be a pretty big risk factor, right? <laughs> That's where, as I said before, you've got the peer pressure, you've got the access to drugs, you've got invitations to parties to use drugs. So all those things kind of coalesce at school. With that being said, for cannabis and most other drugs, there was about a one-year 20% decline in the prevalence of drug use. But it's important to point out that the 80% still remained. So even if you are able to somehow remove kids from their environment and lock them up in a, in a, in a closet, Many of them, the majority of them, if they want to use drugs, are probably going to use them anyway. Like after mentioning that, you said that, you know, the biggest, the biggest reason that kids tend to use because of peer pressure, being around their friends, wanting to fit in at parties, but that's often a misconception based on data, given the 
percentage of kids that actually use like people you people think that everybody's doing marijuana so they do it too talk about why the data doesn't suggest that yeah right uh, great question so oftentimes as you were saying you can ask kids are your kids are your friends using drugs and most adolescents think that all their friends are doing drugs but our results, and this is one of the benefits of doing a large national sample like this, show that really, uh, if you look at kids who have used drugs, or let's say kids who use cannabis in the last 30 days among 12th graders, it's um, 20% report that they've used cannabis in the last 20 days. So it's really, it's really the minority. And many kids might feel like there's something wrong with them, they're not fitting in because all their friends are using drugs. When in fact, the majority of kids don't use drugs, and it's important to get that message across that it's the, the people who are using cannabis who are really the people who are anomalous and standing out, and not the people who are refraining from it. Any other risk factors that stood out to you, whether it be what kind of home they grew, that these kids grow up in, what kind of area they live in, anything like that stick out to you that, that parents should uh, be aware of? I say this at risk of bringing up the whole gateway theory, which is very controversial, but I think Tobacco control, if you can stop kids from smoking cigarettes, that is going to be uh, a very large step towards preventing them from using cannabis or any other uh, substances. Uh, I just finished a, a study of more than two dozen European countries, which have variation in tobacco control. And those European countries that were able to reduce the prevalence of national cigarette smoking among kids also saw very substantial decreases in, in, in cannabis use. And they weren't even trying to reduce cannabis, right? They were just focusing on, on cigarettes. And so that being said, the big question now is what about kids who vape? Is that going to lead them to start using cannabis? And it's a little bit too soon yet. I, I think we don't know. That's a question that we'll be monitoring very closely. From what I understand, isn't vaping, like you don't have to get too into the science on this. Maybe, maybe you don't know, but I at least thought I would ask, isn't vaping like way, like way more potent as far as nicotine versus tobacco. So wouldn't that be, I guess, somewhat obvious that if, if tobacco, which has a smaller percentage of nicotine is considered to be a gateway drug to marijuana, then vaping, you could almost for certain say is as well. If you believe that the link between nicotine use and cannabis use is changes in the adolescent brain. So there's a lot of work on that, right? That says once you use nicotine, it primes your brain for future, future drug use, right? But then there's another school of thought that says, well, it's really not so much the changes to the brain, those may occur, but it's because if you start smoking cigarettes, you become known as a drug user. It's part of your social identity. So you'll be invited to parties where other kids are gonna use drugs. And you're going to develop a friendship network of drug users, and they're going to encourage you to use drugs. So it really could go either way. I, I will say this. We saw, as I mentioned earlier, a huge increase in nicotine vaping from 2017 to 2019, the largest increase you've ever seen for any drug in 48 years. And so if that were directly and immediately related to cannabis use, then you would expect that in those same years, we would have seen increases in cannabis use. But we didn't among adolescents. It pretty much stayed steady that whole time. So it could be that maybe it's a delayed effect. Maybe the kids who are vaping now nicotine, maybe in three or four or five years, they'll be more likely to be using cannabis. We follow some of these kids over time, so, so we'll find out. 
as far as other risk factors at home, like I think parents, when they're listening to this, are like, all right, like what can I do to make sure that my kid doesn't get addicted to something like nicotine or cannabis or whatever? Is there any questions you ask about the home life? Like meaning does, does, do your parents like drink or do drugs? Are your parents divorced? Are your parents married? Are you, do your, are your parents abusive? Like whatever the questions are just to give, I mean, I'd love to be able to give parents like a little bit of insight if there's anything they can do to kind of maybe prevent, you know, some of this stuff from happening. I have an answer to that. The answer is absolutely not. We do not ask anything about parents. All the schools that participate do so voluntarily and the parents have to be on board. And if we start asking questions about parents, that would uh, alarm a lot of the parents of the students who go to the schools that we survey. So we're very careful not to ask those type of questions, which isn't to say they're not important because they are, as you mentioned, they're, they're very important, but they're not very well suited for a national survey like this one, I suppose. There's probably better ways to answer those questions than with um, monitoring the future. So we, we talked about that something that was kind of surprising was that kids think that everybody else around them is, is using marijuana and peer pressure tends to be the number one reason that kids use. That was a bit surprising. What else has been surprising from you as a researcher, just looking at the trends over the last five to 10 years that you thought maybe you might see something different happen based on something else? I'm surprised that cannabis use among teens is not a lot higher than it is right now. We track perceived risk of cannabis. So we ask kids if they believe they will be at great harm, doing themselves great harm to these cannabis. And that perceived risk has gone down considerably. Like for example, let's see, 10 years ago, 45% of 12th graders thought that if they used cannabis on a regular basis, that they'd be doing themselves great harm. And today in 2022, it's just 30%. So it's, it's really declining substantially and gradually over time. And you would think that cannabis use would increase as a result, because that's what we've seen with pretty much all other drugs, that as perceived risk goes down, the use goes up. And I think the main reason for that is that cigarette smoking has gone down. And as cigarette smoking goes, goes down, so too does cannabis use. But that being said, we're almost at the point where we're reaching a floor in terms of cigarette use. There, pretty soon, it's not going to be able to go down any further. So let me back that up with num numbers. Among 12th graders, for example, in 2022, percentage of 12th graders who had used a cigarette in the past 30 days was 4%. That's pretty small, right? You compare that to, for example, 1997, when it was 37%. Uh, but now we're down to 4%. So uh, I think as the dampening effect of declines in cigarette use go away, I suspect, unfortunately, we're going to see cannabis use start to increase. And it'll increase steadily and for a long time unless we do something about it. Does that concern you? Yes, that concerns me very much. How should I put it? You're not at risk of cannabis addiction if you don't use cannabis, right? Uh, but every one of those kids who start using cannabis is putting themselves at risk. And as you know, that can be quite debilitating and have a very negative effect on these kids' lives for the rest of their lives. Without getting in too into the weeds from a psychological perspective on this, I just love your insight. You mentioned the perceived risk has gone down amongst kids with cannabis, despite 
I mean, just based on people that I've talked to in, in the in the in the uh, medical community, that the risk of using it in reality has actually gone up as far as like the adverse effects, right? The potency of the THC potentially leading to the psychosis and psychiatric issues and stuff and becoming more dependent on it. Why do you think that kids see it as less harmful now, despite a lot of the evidence saying the opposite? One major factor has got to be the discussion about legalization of recreational marijuana. So as that happens in more and more states, about half of states now have legalized recreational marijuana use. Many kids are going to take away from that, that it's safe and that it's fine and that they can do it with, with no problems. So I think that's a major part. I think also there's many celebrities who extol the virtues of cannabis use for whatever reason. I don't know why they're doing that, but they like to do that. And you know, adolescents are very susceptible. And as we all know, those YouTube influencers can have a big effect on the beliefs and behaviors of adolescents. As far as a how kids are consuming it now, I've heard from people that kids, it's not like them sitting around a bonfire like it was for me and, you know, smoking out of ripping bong hits or smoking joints. It's more, you know, vaping or edibles and stuff like that. I know you pull data on the different ways that kids choose to consume marijuana. What's the trend been like as far as the way they, 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 they tend to use it? The background, the context here is that until the pandemic, there was basically very little change in the prevalence of cannabis use among adolescents. And within that context, we've seen vaping cannabis really skyrocket. So in 2017, among 12th graders, about 10% reported they had vaped marijuana in the last 12 months. And in 2020, right before the pandemic, they more than double, it was at 22%. So vaping seems to be becoming increasingly popular. And, you know, there, you can see a lot of reasons for that because it's much more concealable. So I think that's a major effect. Although overall, cannabis use prevalence has pretty much stayed the same. So it seems like what's going on here is that the kids who would use marijuana instead of smoking it, they're now vaping it instead. And hey, you know, uh, on another topic, have you heard of Delta 8? I, I have, I have. I mean, I just, just, um, just through, I guess, uh, I don't know if it's been through people talking about it online or just through, um, you know, call friends or something, but yeah. Yeah, so, so Delta 8, it is a form of THC, which is the active ingredient in cannabis, and it comes from hemp, not from cannabis. So there was the, I think, 2019 Agricultural Act that was passed. And it allows on the market the marketing of anything derived from hemp. So basically, Delta 8 is a type of cannabis that's developed from hemp. And in most states, anybody can go in and buy cannabis. And there's no federal, no federal restrictions on age. I think most retailers probably wouldn't sell it to kids. But nevertheless, they could if they wanted to, many of them. And I think what's, what's really interesting is that uh, I think we're going to see more and more kids use this Delta 8, particularly because, have you heard of Puff Bar? I haven't, no. I'm, I'm, I'm an old man I'm an old man and out, out of the game. <laughs> have you heard of Jewel? I have, yeah. That was like the old, they got banned, right? Didn't they, didn't they ban that in schools? Well, right. So they, uh, they got banned. You can't, uh, Jewel can't use flavors. Oh, okay. And so what happened was, as soon as Jewel is prohibited from using flavors, because it's a cartridge-based device, 
So you just put a cartridge on, you, you vape it, and then you get rid of the old one, you put a new one on. So the law was no cartridge-based vaping devices can have flavors. But there was a loophole in there, a loophole you could drive an 18-wheel truck through. And if you're not a cartridge, if you're a disposable vaping device, you could use flavors. So Puff Bar, lo and behold, all of a sudden, just like overnight, they became extremely popular. Kids stopped using Juul, and they used Puff Bar instead because they could get flavors. That being said, Puff Bar receives a cease and desist letter from the FDA. They're not allowed to do that anymore with nicotine because the FDA has jurisdiction over nicotine. The FDA does not have, cannot regulate Delta 8 or THC or cannabis. So what Puff Bar did is they no longer sell nicotine vaping devices. They've switched to Delta 8. So you go into a convenience store, you go into a gas station, you ask for a Puff Bar, you can get the Delta 8. And even in states that have banned marijuana, that where it's still illegal, you can still get this Delta 8, which is basically a form of marijuana light. Anyway, so we're keeping uh, our, our finger on that. We're keeping track of that. We're going to have the first estimates uh, by December at the latest that we'll be able to publish about the prevalence of Delta 8, which is kind of a maybe a backdoor that kids might be using uh, to get cannabis. And is that, a, I guess, a milder form of it? Apparently. That's what I'm told. Yeah. It's, it's like a marijuana light, but uh, or cannabis light, but um, I don't know. I don't know if you can use a whole bunch of it and get more of a high or if it doesn't work that way. Have you been able to track if like certain interventions in schools, like, I mean, when I was going to school, it was like there, it was like, I don't even remember what it, I forget what it was, the uh, drug awareness resistance education or something. something. Is that what it was? That's what it is. Yes. And I think that in a way kind of backfired. Um, for a lot of kids, at least, because then they develop this, well, this rebellious attitude, like, I don't want to be told what to do or blah, blah, blah. Um, Have you found any of these interventions or awareness campaigns to be effective in reducing cannabis use amongst kids? Yeah. Uh, So drug awareness, resistance education, there are actually studies of that, and millions of dollars was put into that, and it showed it had no effect whatsoever. So uh, that was kind of a waste of time and effort. Um, so I'm not aware off the top of my head of any uh, any program nationally that's been shown to have effect. I think it just comes down to education for the most part. Um, and uh, I imagine also these national media campaigns, those are more difficult to evaluate, but those do seem to be having an effect. Not so much the, here is your brain on drugs, but uh, the, the there's all these anti-vaping um, ads, which you probably haven't seen. Because these days, they work through social media. That's the way to get to adolescents. And so they don't have necessarily television commercials. But if you're an adolescent looking at adolescent things, you're likely to get one of these anti-vaping ads, which uh, are pretty well-researched. There's the whole Truth Initiative in Washington, D.C. And uh, they're using these uh, initiatives to try to prevent kids from vaping. And so as a whole, what, you're, what I've heard you say, I guess, in, in, in marijuana use, it's kind of been somewhat steady over the years except for the the pan the, the pre and post pandemic numbers which again there's multi that's multifactorial and there's a lot of, i'm sure nuance to that and then you're also you have a little bit of fear that cannabis use could continue to could actually go up a lot more in the future because of what you were talking about with nic- nicotine and, and tobacco and stuff like that and that also that the 10th graders seem to be the ones that have been using it um, more over the last like year or two or so 
what do you do with all this data? Like what's the next move to be able to help these kids either become more educated in a way that they're more receptive or encourage them to use less. Like if you were driving this car and you you had permission to do whatever you wanted after the study to implement certain things in these schools based on your own expertise, what would you do? Well, you know, I just published a study last week in the Journal of Adolescent Health. And I was looking at the big drop in all drug use, including cannabis use, after the pandemic and the year after the pandemic, right? And there were two competing explanations for that. One is that kids with a history of cannabis use, such as focusing on song cannabis, maybe they stopped using as much as they had in the past, right? That's scenario one. Scenario two is maybe kids who would have initiated use, maybe they never initiated during the pandemic. So does that make sense? So it might be that regular users with a history, they just use less, or maybe that some kids just never started. And what we found is that these decreases almost entirely are the result of lack of initiation. And what we also found among those 10th graders too, is that if you're in ninth grade when the pandemic hits, so um, that means the beginning of high school almost throughout the country, that had a real big effect on lower, lowering initiation of cannabis use. And we also saw lower initiation in the other grades, but it was ninth grade where it's this huge effect because this is ninth grade where all of a sudden you're starting this whole career, you're meeting new people, new people to look up to and what have you. So one lesson I would draw from our results is that that first year in high school, that ninth grade, that is the key year where I think in terms of all the programs and initiatives that are out there, it makes a lot of sense, I think, to really focus on that ninth grade year. And if you can stop drug use then and cannabis use, there's a pretty good chance that those kids will never use cannabis uh, for the rest of their lives. What can parents do? Or would you direct them to any kind of resources, either through your work or University of Michigan or NIDA that could really be helpful for them to, if they're listening to this, like, you know, like, I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to make sure that my ninth grader, you know, doesn't fall into this, this cannabis trap. Um, what should they do? Yeah, I would, I would refer them to the NIDA website, which you can look up. I, I think you can Google NIDA parents and they have a list of programs that, parents can look at uh, and maybe try to get implemented in their schools and whatnot. I'm not a psychologist or a licensed psychologist, so I can't really speak to that too much myself. And then as far as you as a researcher, and just to sum up like a lot of what we've talked about, and you were to just to say like, these are the, the, the five bullet points to summarize this uh, monitoring the future study as it relates to cannabis. Like, what would you say your top findings, if you were to look at it right now, what, what have been, what have, what are your top findings right now? Yeah, our top findings would be, number one, that vaping just took off. It just skyrocketed, skyrocketed, vaping nicotine like you would not believe. And it's very important to have national data to be able to show that so that policymakers and nonprofits and state government and federal government can point to that and use that to justify their budgeting decisions to try to attack that and try to address that. So I would say... That recently has been the number one finding. Um, we're focusing on Delta 8. I think that might be a big finding coming down the pike. I know not too many people know about that yet, but I think it's going to be known about more in the coming years and hopefully something will be able to 
to, to be done about that. Um, and I'd also say uh, another finding, kind of a non-finding, is that cannabis prevalence has stayed pretty steady as cigarette smoking has gone down. And I think that's setting us up to see an increase of cannabis prevalence in the coming years. So that's why it's important for people to stay informed and to, to head to NIDA's website and, and other resources to make sure that they're interconnected with uh, they're connected with the proper resources. And then also, I, I would imagine it's important to develop some sort of a support group. Can I, can I add to that too? If a parent has a kid at a school that's been asked to participate in Launch in the Future, I would really encourage the, the parents to, to help, help the school agree to participate because we got to stick together. I think these national surveys are so important. Uh, I mean, you look at cigarette smoking, before the Master Tobacco Settlement Agreement Act. And there were schools and there were uh, parents and there were school districts all trying to keep their kids from using drugs or from smoking cigarettes. And, you know, if you're divided like that, you're not gonna have much of, a, uh, of an effect. And you've got the tobacco industry, you've got the cannabis industry, which is a billion dollar industry and all their marketing. And you've really got to stick together, I think in order to have an effect and to prevent kids from using these substances. How has cannabis use, like how has there been any, how has cannabis use impacted like opiate use among teens? Because I did, I think, read on the, on the, your website that despite a lot of the drug use dropping off in teens, that overdoses have sky, have continued to, to go up. Um, what is your thesis on that? Yeah. Um, I don't know the answer to that, to tell you the truth. Um, we followed over 100,000 12th graders through their lives as they age forward. And now as we speak, we're actually coding all that data. We're putting those people through the National Death Index. And that's a resource that tells you if somebody's died or not. And so we'll be able to look at the predictors of drug overdose mortality. Uh, next year, I think, we'll be able to start looking at some of that. And we'll be able to see if cannabis use or uh, other moderating factors affect the possibility that someone's going to die of a, a drug overdose. Well, I'll be sure to be on the lookout for that. And Richard, I wanted to thank you so much for your time. Really, uh, really value what you're doing. I think the audience is going to appreciate just hearing some of this data so that they can be more informed about what to do with their kids and also just to be able to learn more about the subject matter itself. So thanks again for your time. Well, thank you so much. It was good talking to you, Doug. And likewise, and I'll make sure to include the link to your to your website for mon the Monitoring the Future study in the notes of the episode. And thanks again for coming on. All right. Thank you.